Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering, and he's also the air band playing for the uh, opening song. James Blend is producing. We're glad to have you with us. What a week we have had. It started out with a tragedy, and we're making our way through the end of the week. We're hearing that there's a uh, another hurricane approaching uh, some areas of the country over the next uh, day or so. Very sobering times. We're going to lighten up today, but before we do that, there were a few of the headlines that I thought uh, worthy of mention as we make our way into the weekend, some things to follow. First of all, the Trump administration announced a major rollback of the Obamacare contraceptive mandate, and uh, they're granting what officials called full protection to a wider range of companies and organizations that say they have a religious or a moral objection to providing coverage. Well, the mandate, which has been the subject of multiple legal challenges, we followed them over the years, required employers to provide health insurance to cover contraceptives. Under the existing policy, under Obamacare, churches and houses of worship were exempt, but religious-affiliated groups that object had to allow a third-party administrator or insurers to handle birth control coverage. They wouldn't have to do it directly, but they would facilitate that coverage, which violated their conscience as well. Well, the 2014 Hobby Lobby decision expanded exemptions for uh, profit closely held corporations, but under this new policy that was under Unveiled earlier today, the administration is expanding the protections to any nonprofit group, non-publicly traded company, or higher education institution with religious or moral objections. Now, religious objections had been in place, moral objections being added, and making the third-party provision optional for groups with sincerely held religious beliefs. Well, publicly traded companies also can claim an exemption if they state religious objections. A senior health and human services official says that uh, they would still have to let a third party cover contraception. So they would have the same arrangement that nonprofits with a religious connection had before. Um, no American, says the uh, uh, Health and Human Services Secretary, Caitlin Oakley, no American should be forced to violate his or her own conscience in order to abide by the laws and re- regulations governing our health care system. Today's actions affirm the Trump administration's commitment to upholding the freedoms afforded all Americans under our Constitution, end quote. Well, officials stress that the impact may be limited, even though uh, the rule changes are significant, and uh, some big corporations uh, were grandfathered into the policy and spared from the mandate anyway. Of the 165 million women in the U.S., Health and Human Services estimates these rules affect about 120,000 at most, leaving more than 99.9% of women without any impact. Again, that's what the HHS is saying. An official noted the administration anticipates the group taking advantage of the changes would be those involved in legal battles pertaining to the mandate. There are currently 200 such organizations that have participated in lawsuits because the contraceptive rule and those entities are going to benefit from this rule. Now, a senior Health and Human Service official said that there have been more than 50 lawsuits filed against the mandate, and the new rule would provide some relief. This has been going on, as you know, for years. um, According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, since the Obama-era rule, the share of women paying for their own birth control pills out of pocket plunged to under 4% compared to 21% before that rule. The expectation is it would be somewhere 
around 10 to 15 percent under the change. Little Sisters of the Poor, the religious group that uh, took their challenge to the Supreme Court, said the administration's new policy was uh, a good thing for them and others. Health and Human Services has issued a balanced rule that respects all sides. It keeps the contraceptive mandate in place for most employers and now provides a religious exemption. The senior counsel for the uh, Beckett Law and leading attorney for Little Sisters of the Poor said that the Little Sisters still need to get to final relief and court, which should be easy now that the government admits it broke the law. The Supreme Court in 2016 punted the Little Sisters case back to the lower courts. This may uh, be ultimately the death knell to this challenge uh, in the courts among those some 200 entities who have filed complaints. In other news, the president looks um, uh, to next week to perhaps decertify Iran's compliance with the obligations under the uh, nuclear deal negotiated by his successor after reiterating on Thursday that his view that the regime in Tehran is not lived up to in spite of the agreement or rather the spirit of the agreement. Well, before meeting with senior security leaders at the White House, he said the regime supports terrorism, exports violence, bloodshed and chaos across the Middle East. Of course, before that agreement was entered into, those same things were true. But he went on to say that's why we must put an end to Iran's continued aggression and nuclear ambitions, adding that the meeting would be discussing the Iran issue. Well, supporters of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, argue that Iran is technically compliant with the deal. But Trump's reference, uh, again, to the spirit alludes to a specific paragraph in the accord. Well, that paragraph says that Iran and the P5 plus one negotiating group, the United States, Britain, France, Russia, China and Germany, commit to implement the agreement in good faith and in a constructive atmosphere based on mutual respect and to refrain from any action inconsistent with the letter, the spirit and the intent of the agreement that would undermine its successful implementation. End quote. Well, some have argued that because that wording is in the preamble of the deal, it's not part of the agreement itself, and therefore Iran cannot be held to it. However, the identical sentence appears again in the body of the accord. Well, the Trump administration has also pointed to another sentence that does appear only in the, pre- the uh, preface. It says that the parties to the accord anticipate that full implementation of the agreement will positively contribute to regional and international peace and security. And that certainly has not been the case. Well, the president, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and others have repeatedly drawn attention to Iranian behavior, such as ballistic missile launches, support for terrorism and other destabilizing activity in the region, as the uh, president did again on Thursday. Much recent media reporting muddles the issue by stating inaccurately that Trump has decided to decertify the deal next week, but not to abandon it. However, the president isn't required to certify or decertify the actual agreement, which the Obama administration ensured was not a treaty requiring Senate advice and consent. Instead, the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act requires the president every 90 days to certify that A, Iran is implementing the agreement, B, that Iran has not breached its commitments under it, C, that Iran has taken no steps to advance its nuclear weapons program, and D, that the, the suspension of sanctions is appropriate and proportionate to the steps Iran has taken and is in U.S. national security interest. Well, next week will be the third time the president must give that report to Congress, whether or not he certifies uh, that those uh, that statement is factually true. 
Uh, we'll find out next week, we are being told. And finally, petitioners took another step toward allowing voters in the state of Oregon to decide the fate of a new health care tax meant to fill the gap in Oregon in its Medicaid program after submitting signatures to the Secretary of State by the deadline, which was yesterday. If 58,789 signatures are in fact validated by the Elections Division out of the 84,367 submitted, the measure will be on the ballot for a special election on Tuesday, January 23rd. Representative Julie Parrish out of West Lynn, a chief petitioner for that referendum, said in a statement, I personally talked to thousands of Oregonians this summer who are incredibly frustrated that the state has not worked harder to better use its health care resources. Well, referendum 301 refers to um, voters' Sections of the Health Care Tax Law, House Bill 2391, that passed in the 2017 legislative session. It applies taxes to health insurance premiums and some hospitals. Uh, the bill was a compromise between health care providers, insurance companies, and lawmakers, and it's aimed at maintaining funding and participation levels for the Oregon Health Plan. Well, enrollment in the program was expanded under the Affordable Care Act, which required the federal government to pay for newly eligible enrollees, at least for the short term. But states have to bear more of the burden past 2016 if they want to maintain enrollment levels. Now, Oregon needed to pick up 5% of the tab this year, which will grow to an expected 10% in 2020. At a rally in Portland yesterday morning, the Coalition of Community Health Clinics, they launched the de facto first step of their campaign for the current law, assuming that petitioners would have enough valid signatures to get the referendum on the ballot. Patients and health care providers spoke out in support. If voters reject the referendum, the plan will lose hundreds of millions in state funding, plus federal matching funds, and lawmakers would likely be forced to take up the uh, issue once more during the 2018 shortened session. In fact, that was the intent when they decided during session to schedule the vote for January. Lawmakers could make up the shortfall by cutting other programs, raising revenue in another matter, or removing up to 378,000 people from Medicaid. The referendum has found its way to the courts, and all of this will be uh, moving forward and ultimately resolved in 2018. 17 minutes after 4 o'clock is your time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. From here on, we're going to lighten up just a bit. Did want to give you a chance to catch up on some of the major headlines of the day. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. By the way, Clark Hilton is here. How you doing, Clark? Are you enjoying this beautiful fall weather. What a way to ease oh, us into... Oh, uh, have been. Yeah, yes. it's been beautiful. I understand it's cooling off tomorrow and we might get some rain over the next couple of days. Yeah, but, but uh, as soon as the weekend's over, it'll be okay again. How about that? Yeah, it's been beautiful. No apple picking this weekend. No, but I understand you're going to make your first apple pie this I weekend. I am. Are you nervous? <laughs> you know, that's kind of... My parents kind of looked at me like, oh, really? Well, take a picture of it for us when you're done. (laughs) I I feel like there's some doubt floating around. Well, you've threatened, I mean, you've promised to bring um, some of the pie here to work on Monday. Oh, I have. I'm looking forward to that. Because my wife isn't really a pie person. Mm -hmm. My daughter said something about wanting to eat pie, but I I don't know if she really would or not. So I'm not going to sit there with a spoon all weekend and eat the whole thing myself. So I thought I'd bring it in. For a few select people, and uh, if it kills you, then I'm sorry. And it, what, what, uh, <laughs> in advance, yeah. No, I'm no, sure it's going to be great. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've really gotten into this whole going out and picking apples thing, mm-hmm. and have got so much applesauce <laughs> right now. 
I need you keep looking at the clock. Like, am I taking up your show time? Do you, do you need me to stop talking no, about I'm this? I'm not looking at am, the clock. Am, oh, you're looking at the TV. Yeah, am, I'm always looking I, for breaking. Am news. I boring you? <laughs> not at all. Go ahead. Yeah. Anyway, so I've been making so much applesauce. I felt like it's time to make something a little bit different. And pie. I love pie. So here we go. Well, and you shared some of the applesauce, and that was great. Yeah. Your first go round. Can I get that jar back? <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm going to make some more applesauce. Yeah. There's at least another. Uh, Apple sauce picking or two, or apple picking or two uh, that I'll be doing before the end of the season, which I guess for the farm I like to go to, they said is mid-November, so oh, I got, got some time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've enjoyed, or Dan and I have enjoyed the apple sauce. Oh, good. So he had some too. Yeah. Did yeah. he like it? Or yes. Did he say, From that guy you work with? Yeah, it's, very, it's very hearty. I like it. It's uh, It's got um, more chunky. I liked it. It, it was more substantial, and I like it. I'm going to make an apple cake. This weekend, using right. what's left of your applesauce. So, all right. Well, do you, are you going to bring that in? Yes, because I would sample. I that. did promise. Well, I could probably make some I, more applesauce for you too, because I've got different apples than I did for the first set that I made you. Yeah, you're exploring all. Kinds I've got of all sorts of things going on in my kitchen. <laughs> well, good for you. Well, the Senate Banking Committee on the Equifax data breach, no laughing matter, attracted attention on social media for an unusual audience member. You know the guy, the Monopoly man? I saw that. He, he was there. I'm not sure what his statement was, but images taken from video of the committee's uh, hearings on Wednesday went viral on Twitter after users noticed someone dressed as Mr. Monopoly, a.k.a. Rich Uncle Pennybags, uh, sitting behind the former Equifax CEO Richard Smith as he delivered his testimony. Of course, he resigned after the breach was made public and, you know, a lot was made of it. The video bomber, as they're calling him, was uh, later revealed as Amanda Werner, campaign manager with uh, Americans for Financial Reform and Public Citizen. I am dressed as the Monopoly man to call attention to Equifax and Wells Fargo's use of forced arbitration as a get-out-of-jail-free card for massive misconduct, Werner said, speaking to CNN Tech. They use this rip-off clauses buried in the fine print to ensure that consumers can't join together to hold them accountable in court. Well, the video was posted on YouTube by Public Citizen. It shows Werner in character as the board uh, game icon handing out flyers modeled as Monopoly's get-out-of-jail-free card outside the hearing. The flyer bears the Equifax and Wells Fargo logos. So I'm sure that uh, there was a little bit of snickering. Oh, I snickered. uh, Yeah, among those who were sitting, who were impaneled in front of the uh, former CEO of Equifax seeing the Monop- the Monopoly guy. And I didn't know what his name was. I didn't realize his name was uh, Rich Uncle Pennybags. Is that widely known? I Did might have that? heard that at yeah. one time. Yeah, of course, I haven't played Monopoly in years. Well, a strange smell that prompted a hazmat response at a Baltimore high school was found to have a seasonal but not unusual cause. Now, that's got to be a little bit frightening. There's some, some um, odiferous change in the atmosphere and... You know, kids, everyone's a little bit concerned. So the hazmat team shows up, and the cause? A pumpkin spice air freshener. I heard about that, too. <laughs> Cristo Ray Jesuit High School posted a statement on its website explaining students noticed a strange odor on the third floor of the school at about 2.30 p.m. on Thursday. Officials evacuated the school and emergency personnel, including the Baltimore City Fire Department's hazmat team. They were summoned to investigate the odor. <laughs> Uh, five members of our community were transported to area hospitals as a precautionary measure. This had to have been some overpowering uh, pumpkin spice uh, odor. Yeah. Uh, the statement said after 
Uh, extensive testing, the BCFD, that's the fire department, determined that the building was safe. Well, the fire department identified the source of the offending smell as a pumpkin spice air freshener. I realize it's it's overdone this season, but this plug-in air freshener that basically puts out uh, the odor every um, second or so, and it's pumpkin spice, and that's exactly what, if you go in there, you can smell. So it's been identified it's not a hazard at all. Now, it's interesting to me that it's a pumpkin spice smell, but no one recognized it as a pleasant, spicy odor, <laughs> rather as something that... Maybe it had a metallic... Yeah, who knows? ...smell to it. Um, the school officials did the right thing by calling authorities, they said. It's always best to take, uh, take precautions. We are the experts... Uh, calling 911. Uh, come in, make sure that everything is safe so we have no problem with them uh, calling us, making that call. I know a lot of uh, equipment that you see around here, a lot of firefighters and uh, all of them working on this incident. We want to make sure that these students and teachers are all safe. So if there is a pumpkin spice event in your area, apparently it is advisable to call 911 uh, to just to make sure that there's nothing. <laughs> I mean, a gas leak smells like rotten eggs. Yeah. And I would like to think that that's distinguishable from the pleasant odor of pumpkin spice uh, that was being uh, emanated bl- yeah, into the uh, into the room. I, I have noticed that some of these air fresheners aren't quite as pleasant as they would have. You they believe. don't quite have the smell that you're expecting. It's uh, like a manufactured. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody in a chemical lab was trying to come as close (laughs) as they could, and it didn't quite work out. I have a very small office, and I decided, you know, I've been hearing about these really nice scents that you can have in your room, and I decided, well, I'm going to get one of those. You plug it into the outlet, and it was uh, fresh linen, and I thought, I love the, the smell of fresh linen. So I plugged it into my outlet, and of course, my room was so small, it was utterly overwhelming. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. several people started to come in, and they just they couldn't take it. I it smells like burning laundry. <laughs> I was a little bit nose blind to it, but um, that didn't work here. So we didn't call nine one one though. So I guess that was uh, that, that we was know good. of. Yeah, <laughs> someone might have, but we didn't have the hazmat team here. I, I do know that. We are often talking about the Guinness Book of World Records and the extent to which people will go in order to have their name uh, placed in the book. And it's amazing to me how grown-ups um, will go to great lengths so that they can be named in the Guinness Book of World Records as holding some kind of record that may be meaning- meaningless. It may require no skill at all, but it gets them in the Guinness Book of World Record. Well, one such example, an Italian man put on more than a dozen pair of underwear with record-breaking speed. We talked about this earlier, and you thought that that was ridiculous. And I'm saying, if I could put on 14 pair of underwear, I would do that to get my name in the record book in 30 (laughs) seconds. Would you really? Silvio Sabah used a unique technique to quickly put on 13 pair of underpants to claim Guinness World Record for most underpants pulled on in 30 seconds. I mean, look. Really? Is that what you want to be known for? You're already, you're spending more time talking about this now than than, than Guinness took to actually print out the records. So So see, that's why he's so famous now. (laughs) Yeah. He's on your show. His strategy involves layering underwear down, laying them on a table, leaping into each um, pair uh, first, before pulling them up above his waist, which is, of I, course, how everyone... I would love to see this technique after, of course, he has <laughs> the first pair on already. <laughs> after continuously leaping several inches off the ground, he successfully placed all 13 on his waist and raised his arms in triumph. 
He claims the 30-second record for an individual. There are several categories for different time limits and participating in a team of two and so on. So apparently this constitutes a world record worth making note of. Wow, that's definitely a first world record. 31 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, having a bit of fun on a Friday afternoon. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's been a call to uh, people in the East Portland area. Are you missing a pig? It's a real question, according to Multnomah County Animal Services. Uh, they're looking for the owner of a Vietnamese potbilly pig found wandering near Powell Butte Park on the 2nd of October. Employees at the um, um, Multnomah County Animal Shelter are calling the pig Humphrey and say he's about a year old, very people-oriented. He even knows how to uh, spin and a few other tricks. Anyone who can help find Humphrey's owner is asked to contact the Multnomah County Animal Services. But the potbelly pig was just found wandering around the East Portland area. Again, uh, it was found in, um, let's see, where do they say? Powell Butte Park on October the 2nd. I hope it's not one of those things where we're tired of our pig, we're just going to let him go. That happens quite often with rabbits and other other animals. But anyway, they're looking for... The owner of that thing. Well, the farm in Oregon is drawing attention from passersby due to the unusual animal they have guarding their herd of goats. They have a zebra. This is right here in Oregon. Zinfandel, the black and white striped equine owned by Norman and Rosalinda Vizina, have become the subject of fascination by locals who posted photos they snapped of the zebra protecting her goat herd at the farm west of Lebanon. Well, the Vizinas uh, said Zinfandel, the zebra, protects the goats just as fiercely as a dog or a llama would. I guess llamas protect them as well. She guards the goats, says Norman. Uh, The Albany Democrat Herald reports she's extremely protective of them. He said the 10-year-old zebra, nicknamed Lady Zen, has been with the couple since she was 10 days old. And again, now 10 years old. She used to sit on my lap and... I would feed her a bottle, says Vizina. He said the zebra's uh, career as a goat protector came about as a result of a bet. My wife and a neighbor had a bet about uh, who could find and buy a zebra first. My wife won, he says. Uh, She got rid of her uh, motorcycle and got a four-legged zebra. We love her. I love watching her run in the fields. The couple said they are aware that Lady Zen's popularity with the locals, but they weren't really uh, prepared for that uh, broadening out to others. People stop every day and take pictures of her. Probably two or three times a day, people drive up and ask if they um, can get a closer look at her. Well, you can see her from the field protecting, well, the sheep. So they uh, apparently went out and got her when they uh, were bet that they couldn't. I guess that's as good a reason to have a zebra as not. It's an odd story. Yeah. It is an odd story, and I wonder what's required for uh, keeping a zebra. It might be just like a horse. It's an equine kind of creature. Well, an astonished bison. And like a unicorn, too. I'm not sure what you do for a unicorn. An astonished bystander captured footage of circus employees. Oh, circus employees. <laughs> That's just an old thing. You know, who works for the circus anymore? Uh, anyway, the story is dated October 4th, but... Uh, An astonished bystander captured footage of circus employees chasing after a herd of escaped zebras as they round down a busy road. I'm not sure I've ever seen zebras in a circus act, but 
Uh, Gabor Cardos Cardi posted a video to Facebook showing a group of zebras dashing down a street in Sopron with the two men in hot pursuit. The Hungarian National Circus, you got to go all the way to Hungary if you want to see a circus these days, said in a Facebook post, the six zebras escaped when an employee apparently failed to properly close their fence. The circus has said none of the zebras were injured during their time on the run. So zebras showing up in more than one story just this past week. How about that? Who knew? No unicorn, though. I wasn't able to find one of those. Well, an Australian zoo said a young female koala escaped from her enclosure, uh, ending up stranding herself atop a tree in her search for a mate. Oh, just looking for love. The Australian Reptile Park in Summersby, New South Wales, said two-year-old koala Irene was missing from her enclosure on Wednesday morning. She had decided it was time to find a mate, but koala tender doesn't exist, so she took it upon herself to go searching, uh, the zoo said on its Facebook page. The zoo said Irene's Houdini-like escape led her to become stranded at the top of a nearby tree. The post included video of uh, zoo staff uh, using a lift to reach and rescue the lovelorn koala, acting quickly. Uh, Tim Faulkner and keepers went to work to rescue Irene with a scissor lift, supporting, uh, supported rather um, by a crowd watching the rescue mission take place. The Post said there was no mention of whether or not they were going to try to uh, find a mate for the lovelorn um, koala bear. But nonetheless, she was looking for love in all the wrong places. Now, this was really interesting because the National Weather Service, as you know, provides information about uh, trends in weather uh, patterns and so on. Well, uh, the National Weather Service said a huge mass seen descending on Denver in weather radar imagery was found to be a gigantic swarm of butterflies. I saw that. That was crazy. It really was. And especially since butterflies seem to be, the numbers seem to be dwindling. The mm. um, National Weather Service station in Boulder posted an animated GIF, GIF image, uh, to Twitter showing a radar image of something they initially hypothesized to be migrating birds. Well, they were migrating, but they were not birds. Look at what's flying into Denver. Radar from last hour showing what we believe to be birds. Any birds, experts know what kind, the National Weather Service tweeted on Tuesday. Well, bird experts responded to the tweet, saying the image was taken at an odd time of day to be birds, which generally migrate at night. Well, the Weather Service initially brushed off suggestions that the image could be a swarm of insects, but it was later noted that the mass was moving north-northwest rather than south, as, <clears throat> excuse me, as it would be if it was a flock of birds. Well, Twitter users explained that butterflies were attempting to migrate south, but were being blown off course by wind. Well, the station explained why the image was originally thought to be birds, saying that things with big wings need to fly together in, a, in the same direction with the wind to generate the uh, signature whatever ZDR is, um, but they wrote on their Facebook page that insects rarely produce such a coherent radar signature. Migrating birds do all the time, but this was a very unusual event in which apparently hundreds, maybe thousands of butterflies were picked up on weather radar. So something of a mystery that was ultimately solved. Mm -hmm. Now, I could not move forward um, on a Friday show without sharing at least one story about an escape snake. I have one. I can't uh, believe you have this every week. 
Well, There's the truth always is, a snake I story. only share one and out of... And a Guinness Book of World Records story. I only share one of what oftentimes is a dozen stories of snakes showing up <laughs> in very peculiar places. A shocked visitor to an Australian mall. Now, Australia, I suppose it's not all that surprising. Captured video of a large snake slithering around inside the parking garage. Mishka Minikova posted a video to Facebook showing the large python brazenly wandering around inside the... Market Town Shopping Center parking garage in Newcastle, South Wales. Now, I suppose if you live there, this probably isn't that unusual for you. Um, but for those of us who don't have big snakes that, you know, live down the street and are slithering their way through a mall parking garage, this is something of an unusual sight. There are no snakes in the city, they said. Hashtag snakes uh, in the car park, snake in the shopping mall, hashtag only Australia, hashtag Minikova wrote. Minikova said she and her boyfriend alerted security and kept traffic away from the snake as it slithered through the garage. One witness said the diamond python was caught safely and relocated to a more appropriate habitat. So I suppose when we encroach on their habitat, they feel quite free to encroach on what we presume to be ours. So just the latest uh, snake where it's not expected. 45 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You know, we mentioned earlier that people will go to great lengths to have their name written in the um, Guinness Book of World Records. Even for putting on their underwear. Yeah. Quickly. Many of them quickly. <laughs> well, a man in Texas is looking to pass on his unique collection, his legacy, if you will of toilet seat art that he's created for about half a century. Barney Smith is 69. He's offering his toilet seat art museum containing more than 1,300 hand-decorated toilet seats to the highest bidder. Bitter. He thinks there's more than one person who might be interested. He's a man of some faith, isn't he? Well, he thanks all the thousands of people coming from all around the world for the last 50 years or so. A post on the museum's Facebook page states... Clorox launched an online campaign to help find Smith a buyer, including a digital gallery of his toilet seat art. Smith told Fox 29 he decided (laughs) it was time to sell the museum after noticing he wasn't able to produce art as quickly in his old age. So apparently he has perpetually produced uh, art works on toilet seats. I can't do what I used to do, he said, because I'm getting so old. I'm 96. Wow. So he's been doing that since his 40s? 96, yeah. He's seeking between 15000 to $20,000 for the museum and hopes to find a buyer dedicated to preserving the collection. 15000 to 20000 I want somebody to keep it as a museum, Smith told Atlas Obscura. I don't care whether it goes to New York or Kalamazoo, Michigan. Wherever they want to take it, they've got to keep it together. Well, Smith's friend and fellow <laughs> artist, Care Bai, has gathered a group in hopes of finding a new location in San Antonio to display his art. If his uh, art and other art like his was in one space in San Antonio, people would flock to it. Uh, it would become huge say his supporters. In the meantime, the museum will operate normally, accepting visitors by appointment free of charge. I guess it's one of those things you'd go to see on one of your road trips across the country, along with the uh, world's largest ball of twine. Yeah, I guess there's something fascinating about that. I mean, if he's a talented artist, maybe the art 
in and of itself is worth seeing, whether or not it's on a toilet seat. But I guess the novelty of both things together <laughs> means that people have come, yeah. he says, from all over the world uh, to see it. Toilet seats aren't cheap either, so he must have spent a fair amount of money yeah. on, on on those. And Clorox, as I mentioned, they've launched, uh, launched rather an online campaign to help find a buyer. Somebody with fifteen to twenty thousand dollars lying around with um, you know nothing to do with. Yeah, absolutely. Want to just burn the money up? <laughs> I I would guess so. Well, a Malaysia resident who woke up to find a large lizard in their home captured video of the uh, reptile attempting to evade capture by hiding in the toilet. Speaking of toilet seats, apparently the seat was up. The video filmed Monday in Counton or something like that shows the lizard hanging out in the bowl in a uh, uh, of a squat toilet at the home before crawling into the drain and hiding out below. That doesn't sound comfortable. Well, the residents pour water into the toilet, causing the lizard to make another appearance um, when it comes up for air. Yesterday morning, says the filmer of the thing, I woke up and I opened the door of my room and I saw a big lizard outside. I was shocked and afraid that it would bite me. Of course, that is always the fear. So I called my mom to help me. The lizard slowly climbed to the toilet in my house and hid inside. Uh, My mom and I tried to get rid of it, but we failed. So we decided to lock the door and call others to help, which is what they ultimately did. Uh, Apparently, by pouring water into the receptacle, it kept it from going down further where it could have caused real problems and maybe even died. Although, I don't know if they can navigate. It's a pretty big lizard, if you could see the picture. So it doesn't look like it could have lived in the pipes or survive for very long. But anyway, hopefully they got the help that they need. I always turn to look these days because I've heard so much. <laughs> yeah. Just like, you just never I've caught know. myself doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Listening to this show is public service, but a little dangerous too. <laughs> well, yeah. And I share only a fraction of some of the absurd stories that I hear of things that occur. A worker switching out an air conditioning system at a Florida house shared a video of a secret room he discovered that might have once hidden a murderer. Mm. A video recorded last month shows the worker walking around the Plant City home and giving a tour of the secret room he found behind a false wall in the attic over the garage. I used to have, um, I've had a number of recurring dreams, but one of the dreams that I had was that in my house there was a whole section that I had never explored before and it was it was expansive and there were um, areas where you could even set up housekeeping in a whole nother area but I've always dreamed of having a secret room or a secret um, branch to a home that doesn't exist he says I found a piece of uh, wall that didn't look the same as the rest I pushed on the wall revealing a secret room leading to the secret room was a carpeted uh, walkway when the secret room doors was closed it didn't even look like there was one the room which is carpeted features stained wood walls uh, license plates hung up as apparent decoration and even a makeshift toilet uh, there was a very grim feeling about the place he said someone who saw the video sent him information indicating the room might have once been used by dd miller who was convicted in 2012 of swindling and murdering a lottery winner. I'm not sure what the secret room was used for, but if I had to guess, I would guess it was from hiding out from the police. So they've created a whole scenario that they can't confirm (laughs) about this secret room. I'd love to have a secret room or a wall that you put pressure on and it opens up. Like a James Bond type of thing? Yeah, they always have those in the movies. That always seemed intriguing to me. 
Well, I don't know about you, but I have uh, come to enjoy one of the HGTV programs featuring a couple that actually seem to love each other and enjoy doing renovations. Chip and Joanna Gaines have shocked their fans. They're announcing that they are ending their hit series, Fixer Upper, after five seasons. I think they're going to do one more, and then it's over. I actually kind of respect them for making that decision. They have four kids, and uh, clearly on the program, they they're a priority. Well, millions of fans have uh, have had to say goodbye to Chip and Joanna after five seasons of Fixer Upper. The HGTV stars confirmed on their personal blog that they will be ending their run on the network after their latest season. I'm not sure if that's the one that just ended or one that's yet to be broadcast. It was both. Uh, it is with both sadness and expectation that we share the news that season five of Fixer Upper will be our last. They wrote. Uh, While we are confident that this is the right choice for us, uh, it has uh, for sure not been an easy one to come to terms with. Well, the announcement will come as a surprise to the legions of fans who have watched the uh, the two since May of 2013. They went on to say on their personal blog, our family has grown up alongside yours and we have felt you rooting us on from the other side of the screen. How bittersweet to say goodbye to the very thing that introduced us uh, all in the first place. Uh, The duo started out as a small-town decorating duo in Waco, Texas. They've since become international celebrities. Fixer Upper has become one of the highest-rated shows ever for HGTV. The couple is uh, married. They're believers, and on their personal blog, they wrote, This has been an amazing adventure. We have poured our blood, sweat, and tears into this show. We would be foolish to think we can go and go and fire on all cylinders and never stop to pause. They also try to dispel any rumors before they start Uh, saying, our family is healthy, our marriage has uh, honestly never been stronger. This is nothing to do with the fraudulent skincare line that uh, someone was trying to pass off as hers, or anything else that um, you'll inevitably read. The duo confirmed they just want to catch their breath for a moment and give lots of love and attention to both our family and our business. Uh, They've started an empire that goes beyond their show that... um, most assuredly will continue. They have uh, paint and furniture lines as well as a magazine, real estate company. The duo also invested in a restaurant. They wrote uh, a best-selling book together. They recently announced a line of Magnolia products that will be sold at Target. And on top of all the work that they're doing, they have a retail store which draws some 40,000 visitors every week. I don't know. Stopping and taking a breath seems like a good idea to me. They thanked HGTV and their production company for all the success, but have always remained humble in the process. We've been all over the world now, says Chip, 42. But there's something really romantic about not just saying, uh, remember where you came from, but really living that out. Well, the couple will be happy to have some normalcy for their children, 12, 10, 9, and 7. That's Drake. Ella, Duke, and Emmy, if, Emmy K, if you've been watching, whom they never wanted to grow up in the uh, spotlight. Uh, they're so young, and we want to give them the chance to have a normal childhood, said Joanna. She's 39. Family is the most important thing in the world. So good for them. I, when I first read that, I was disappointed because I, I've enjoyed the show from time to time when I have a chance to watch it. But I was also really proud of them that they decided at the height of their success that they were going to actually live out their priorities. They've decided we want to make sure our kids have a normal life. Um, and they're stepping away from a very, very successful program. Now, obviously, they have a lot of other things going as well. But kudos to the uh, Gaines family. All right. It's uh, 5 o'clock. We've got to take a break for news and traffic and, you know, stuff. Snacks. Snacks, yeah. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back seven minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. That was one of the most disappointing breaks I've ever had. You mentioned snacks and there was nothing. I have I, almonds. I was all ready and there, I have there were almonds. no snacks. Man, there were no snacks. <laughs> Man, you shouldn't suggest snacks if there aren't any. I, I was all excited. I'll have some apple pie here for you on Monday. I'll look forward to that. Yeah. All right. Well, authorities in Texas said that they have determined the face down headstones used as a sidewalk at a Texas home were not stolen from graves. <laughs> there was something of a mystery, apparently, these this creepy mystery of sidewalk made of headstones. Uh, has been at least partially solved. Well, Precinct 4 Constable Kent Layton, well, Constable, who uses that phrase anymore, said that he opened an investigation into the headstones on the Hunt County home after a construction worker doing work at a recently purchased house discovered the paving stones that made up the front yard sidewalk uh, were face-down grave markers. Now, this wasn't uh, Chip and Joanna's. You know, it's in Texas, Austin, uh, so, you know, no connection there. He was thinking that he may have uncovered a cemetery, a grave of some sort. Um, the construction worker said it's unusual for somebody to use headstones for walkways. That's kind of a creepy uh, thing to do, if not disrespectful. Well, the headstones were apparently placed sometime after the house was built in 2007. Uh, they say they researched the names on the headstones, which mostly bore death dates of 1974 and uh, they were unable to locate the graves in Fort Worth. He said the Mount Olivet and Greenwood cemeteries confirmed the graves were not missing their headstones. The constable said it appears that the stones were rejected by families um, for misspellings or other errors. And what do you do with them? Well, you make a sidewalk, <laughs> said uh, Mr. Layton. I want to know how they were put there, why they were put there, how they did it. And I still want to know... Um, uh, and confirm that they were, in fact, discarded. Now, I don't know why they didn't just go to the homeowner and ask um, what this was about. But nonetheless, this is a uh, Maybe they thought he'd have something to hide. Maybe so. A secret room, perhaps. Anyway, authorities in Texas are investigating the use of apparently discarded headphones uh, that made up a sidewalk. Headstones, not headphones. <laughs> that would be a very different walkway, wouldn't yeah, it? It would be. You'd be tripping over a lot of it. <laughs> Head. Stones. Thank you. I appreciate the correction. Well, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is always doing its job for our protection, making sure that when they are putting their stamp of approval on a thing, they have thought it through. They've confirmed that it is, in fact, suitable for human consumption. Well, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration issued a warning to a Massachusetts-based bakery against listing love as an ingredient. The FDA reprimanded Nashoba Brook Bakery for misbranding its Nashoba granola by including love as an ingredient on the label. Love is not a common or usual name for an ingredient, the administration said, and is considered to be intervening material because it is not part of the common or usual name of the ingredient. Missing the point altogether. Nashoba Chief Executive Officer John Gates described the FDA's message as so George Orwell and told Bloomberg he was proud to include love as an ingredient in the company's products. I really like that we list love in the granola, he said. People ask us, what makes it so good? It's kind of nice that this artisan bakery can say, well, there's love in it. And it puts a smile on people's faces. Situations like that were where the government is telling you you can't list love as an ingredient because it might be deceptive, just feels silly. (laughs) Well, Gates it was, is. Yeah. Gates was disappointed, but said Neshoba Burke Bakery will ultimately comply with the FDA's request and plans to send a response to the agency. 
Reducing regulations at the federal level is a top uh, is a topic rather that everybody talks about. He said some of these requirements, those kinds of things don't sit right with me. Well, the FBA, FDA rather said the bakery's use of love was not a primary concern, noting some of Neshoba Brooks items were prepared, packaged and held under insanitary conditions. I would think it should be unsanitary, unsanitary. but they yeah. said insanitary conditions. The agency expects the company to correct the serious violations found on FDA's inspection, as noted in the warning letter. Now, interestingly enough, that wasn't the the lead line from the FDA, but they're saying you cannot include love. Maybe love is messy. That's what they're thinking. Love is not sanitary. It's it's messy and it does, you know, you can't rely on it. Therefore, you cannot include it in your granola, and we're going to... Uh, it's insanitary. It is insanitary. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought you looked we're it up. We're just getting dumb and dumber-er. <laughs> dumber-er. Um, the Portland Marathon is coming to Portland. We weren't sure there was going to be one. As opposed to Lake Oswego? <laughs> well, no marathon at all. Yeah. But as the Portland Marathon works to secure a last-minute event... A permit from the city and rebuild trust among participants. I, as When I first heard about the controversy, they were required to provide information that they could not provide. They extended the deadline, and the date for the uh, event was approaching. And I'm sure people who have spent months, if not years, preparing for the event were frustrated at the prospect that the Portland Marathon would not move forward. Um, but they're trying now to rebuild trust among participants with the Department of Justice investigation. Uh, organizers uh, have hired an outside company to take over race operations. Um, Axiom Event Productions, which is a local events management company, uh, they have extensive spe- experience rather working in the city of Portland. Uh, they help produce Portland Sunday Parkways, the Providence Bridge Pedal, the Shamrock Run, Mississippi Street Fair, and so on. So they know what they're doing. They know our community. Well, next events, the uh, for-profit events company controlled by the Marathon's uh, 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 leaders, apparently, will no longer be involved in um, producing the nonprofit marathon. The Department of Justice investigation includes a probe into whether there was a conflict of interest between the marathon, which paid Smith and Wheeler six-figure salaries, according to the latest tax filing from 2014 and next events. Well, all of that's being resolved, but the Portland Marathon will move forward. And by the way, that is coming up this Sunday, October the 8th. Now, if you're driving into the downtown area, you're, you're uh, going to Don't. be made aware, <laughs> but I would advise you not uh, to enter that area and to make note that the uh, the course is changed. Now, I'm not sure how dramatic the changes are. I've done the marathon twice, and there are parts of the course I would love to have seen it changed, but apparently there are some differences. So if you think uh, you know where to avoid. You might want to check the uh, the new map. And they tell us they're excited about the new course. They believe it will work out well, and actually it's a faster course. I'm not sure what that means, except maybe there are fewer hills. It's um, all downhill. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Uh, I remember when I was training for the first time I did the Portland Marathon, I did it by myself. I trained with a group that meets to help people come together, and they can train for it, and you meet every weekend and then do your training in between, and I made friends along the way. But when it came to the actual marathon, we started out as a group, and they had to go to the bathroom all the time. <laughs> and oh. I, I just wanted to run the thing and get it over with, or walk the thing and get it over with. So I didn't stop at any point, so they all sort of dropped off. Uh, so I did it by myself. The second time, I did it with my sister, which was uh, the most fun I've ever had. But 
uh, we were told that the um, the 18th mile from the 18th to the 19th, that's right at the foot of the St. John's, Br- not the St. John's Bridge. Is that right? What's the big bridge? Is it St. John's? The John? big bridge. Yeah. The Fremont? No, it's the one beyond there. I guess it's St. John's. Yeah. So the St. John's Bridge, the mile leading from the lowest point to the bridge itself. It's not the bridge itself, but it's leading up. There's a mile incline, and it's really tough. And you've already gone 18 miles, so I was told that that was going to be the make-or-break moment. So I spent my first 18 miles absolutely dreading that 18th mile leading up to the top of the bridge. And it actually wasn't nearly as bad as I thought, which was probably why they hype it. So, you know, you uh, you're pleasantly surprised. I mean, it was difficult, but it wasn't as hard as I thought. But the bridge itself, you don't realize maybe when you're driving it that the bridge itself is quite an incline before it uh, it comes back down. So those two miles were a bit tough, Um, but it was it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. But one of the uh, the funnest things now along the way, they have bands like every mile. There's a a, band, a live band that plays, and they're doing music of various kinds. And there are people, of course, standing along the way, and they're handing you um, water and different things that will help uh, to hydrate you. And you carry a camel pack that you have water that you can when did drink you last along do the way. This? Oh, it's been several years ago now. I'd have to look yeah. up the years, but I've, I do they still really, have a band every mile? It wasn't that long ago. I would I would think so. It was hmm. really quite a bit of fun. This year, who knows what they're going to have yeah. because it's uh, so different. But I remember one time coming along. It was a, a difficult stretch, and there was a worship band from a, a church, and they were singing a song that was familiar to me. It's a Sunday morning. That, to me, was the highlight of the, the whole affair. But that was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Uh, and lots of folks are going to be doing that same thing this weekend on Sunday. So... Uh, Make note of the fact that there are going to be some blocked roads, and folks will be you're my hero making personal records. And I got tired after down. doing a 5K. Yeah, it's it's exhausting. I did a <laughs> half marathon before that and thought, how on earth will I ever finish 26.3? But somehow pulled it off. Anyway, we're going to take a break. If you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 22 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, freezing your head in the hope of being resuscitated in the future will soon be cheaper than paying for a funeral. Funeral, A cryogenics expert has claimed. Hmm. Now, apparently you will only have your head, you won't have the rest of you. Um, The price of cryogenic technology designed to preserve human bodies is falling by half every 18 months, says Mark Hall. He's the founder of STEM Protect, Britain's first stem cell bank. If current trends continue, having your body frozen and reawakened in 250 years would cost less than being buried in a traditional cemetery. Okay. I feel so strange waking up 250 years later. Yeah, I'm not sure I would want to be here 250 years from now. Uh, We're accustomed to making jokes about freezing heads when we die. And of course, everyone knows Walt Disney did it. Often that's um, their only point of reference, he says. But soon we could see this practice becoming commonplace because advances in technology have made it much more affordable. So is affordability your only reluctance to... um, It's another one of those just because we can doesn't mean we necessarily should. And of course, while we're not at the point yet... Where we can bring someone back to life from this procedure, we believe it's just around the corner. You know, 250-year corner. <laughs> Hall works for a stem cell bank that stores the uh, 
blank cells scientists use to recreate all kinds of tissue. Stem cells are used for research and combating the effects of disease and so on. Well, Stem Protect doesn't offer human cryogenics, but uses the same technology to preserve 125,000 samples of stem cells for 75,000 families. Um, Hall, based on his prediction on the economic principles, would suggest that all technology prices fall by half every 18 months. So he's not talking about what's actually happening. He's just predicting what uh, an economic principle that that, uh, applies to most technology or some technology prices. He believes that cryogenic technology is about to become a mass market product. Already, the Russian cryogenic company, CryoRus, is undercutting rival American labs with a special deal on freezing a human brain for about $13,000. For $39,000, it will freeze and store the entire body. I think I'd want a body if I had, you know, the brain. Yeah. Hall believes prices will fall further. Currently, uh, each thumb-sized vial of human stem cells costs about $783 to store. Now, have these people never seen Frankenstein? What always happens is you have a jar with one brain in it. It's your brain. And then right next to it is the jar of some maniacal person. And somehow they mess up. Your they get your brain and they put it, you know it falls off and somebody grabs the wrong one and you end up with the wrong brain. This is what's going to happen. I've seen it dozens of times. We all I have. I would not recommend this uh, technology. Yeah. Well, Hall believes prices will fall further. Currently, uh, each thumb-sized vial of human stem cells about seven hundred and eighty-three dollars to store. The human head would be the equivalent volume of 5,000 vials, according to Hall, at current prices and with economics of scale built in. He says a human head could cost around, oh, I don't know, $650,000 to preserve for posterity. So if you're trying to think, what can I leave to my children and grandchildren? What will my legacy be? How about your disembodied head and you spend $650,000 of their inheritance making sure it's preserved? You know, maybe you should just go with uh, save your money and buy one of those nice tombstones and hopefully they'll spell the names and everything right <laughs> so it doesn't end up on someone's sidewalk. Yeah, I'm not really looking at Look I'm at looking how for... <laughs> all of your stories tie together. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I want to be buried, burned, or whatever ends up happening. And I'm looking forward to rising again. <laughs> After you're dead, you mean buried trumpet. or burned? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, preferably. And when that trumpet sounds, then all of this is not going to matter much. $650,000 wasted. Uh, current UK legislation makes it unlikely that the British public will commit themselves to hibernation until economic conditions improve. Um, you have to be dead before you can be cryogenically frozen. Oh, man. If it weren't for that, <laughs> yeah. the body has to be frozen within 25 minutes of death. So if you're going to pass away, make sure you do so close to refrigeration. Uh, we're not at the point yet where we can bring someone back to life from this procedure, but we believe it's just around the corner. There's a lot, apparently, just around the corner. Uh, today's the day, Martha. I think I might need to go hang out by the lab for a while. Just <laughs> the in dry case. Ice. <laughs> Hit the dry eyes. Well, a New Jersey man who spent decades preparing his home for doomsday is donating all of his stored food to families affected by Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Now, let's hope it's not expired. But Joseph Badame lost his wife and was in the process of losing his Medford home when the 74-year-old met a couple raising money for their family affected by Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Uh, Badame made a $100 donation and then led the couple to the room where he stored all of his food and told them, to take it all. 
I just can't put into words just how much food there was, says Victoria Martinez Barber, 30. It was enough to feed a town, she says. Mr. Badame had gathered 80 barrels of food that each could sustain 84 people for four months. He said the food, which included dried beans, rice, flour, sugar, pancake mixes and more, would have been thrown away otherwise. Again, it might have been expired. You don't you don't know. I've lost everything. My wife, my house, everything, he says. The last thing I was going to lose is the food. Well, Badame. He started preparing for the worst with his wife, Phyllis. In the 1970s, the two equipped their basement with multiple kitchens and bathrooms, a bomb shelter, survival books. He estimated they spent close to a million dollars on the project. Their prepping was put on hold after Phyllis suffered a massive stroke in 2005 that left her paralyzed. He says he quit his job, took out a half million dollar loan on his house and spent his time caring for his wife. Uh, By the time his wife died in 2013, he was broke. We'll commend him. I commend him for taking care of his wife and um, living up to the vows they made. The bank foreclosed on his property. It was um, at the estate sale last month where Bedane met um, uh, Martinez Barber and her husband. Uh, He said meeting the two gave him a new purpose in life. Uh, Phyllis, his uh, now deceased wife, and I prepared all this for one group of people, and it turns out it's going to help another group of people, he said. That's wonderful. Now, the challenge will be getting it out of wherever he stored it and all the way to um, Puerto Rico and then transporting it to where people can actually get it. Part of the problem is the infrastructure uh, makes it difficult to move things from one place to another. Well, Apple is launching new emojis next week, including dinosaurs, fairies, and zombies. I mean, how did we live without them up no to this No unicorns, point? though. Breastfeeding mothers, women wearing hijabs, um, gender-neutral individuals are about to be officially recognized as emoji. Hmm. They'll be joined by much-anticipated expressions such as um, mind-blown food, including broccoli and dumplings, fantasy figures like vampires <laughs> and donkeys, and the last remaining heart and the color rainbow when Apple releases its latest software update next week. Do people really use these things? I mean, there's such a variety of odd little things. I use a few of them, but I bet most people just use a few of them and not the thousands that are available. Yeah, I mean, the smiley face, that says it all. Even a bearded man and yoga masters will make an appearance for the hipster crowd. The new additions are part of the 2017 Emoji Update decided upon by Emoji Nonprofit Governing Body. They have a governing body to determine which emojis will emerge. The Unicode Consortium, uh, they set the global standard for the colorful characters and they ensure that they can work across software platforms. But the Apple updates are going to arrive at a challenging time for emoji amid claims a Facebook-owned app uh, has stolen the iPhone company's thunder and amid less blob-shaped emojis from Google. Again, first world problems. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, we started the program with a few of the headlines that I thought were worth taking a little time out to reflect on. And I wanted to, for those of you who join us later in the show, uh, to remind you of some of those headlines to follow through the weekend. The administration, the Trump administration today, announced a major rollback of the Obamacare contraceptive mandate. And they're granting what officials called full protection to a wide range of companies, to organizations that say that religious or moral objections uh, provide coverage uh, to providing that coverage will be allowed. Now, you'll note that it's an expansion from religious 
uh, objection, but also moral objection. Well, the mandate, which has uh, been the subject of a number of legal challenges, as you probably know, required employers to provide health insurance to cover contraceptives. Well, under the existing policy, churches and houses of worship were exempt, while religious affiliated organizations that object I had to allow a third-party administrator or insurer to handle birth control coverage. So they still provided it in sort of a roundabout, inadvertent way. Well, the 2014 Hobby Lobby decision expanded exemptions to for-profit, closely held corporations. Under the new policy that uh, was announced earlier today, the Trump administration is expanding the protections to any nonprofit group, not just closely held, non-publicly traded company or higher education institution with religious or moral objections, and making the third-party provision optional for groups with sincerely held religious beliefs. Well, publicly traded companies also could uh, claim an exemption if they state religious objections, though a senior health and human services official said they would still have to let a third party cover contraception. No American should be forced to violate his or her own conscience in order to abide by the law and regulations governing our health care system, the HHS Press Secretary Caitlin Oakley said earlier today, saying that today's actions affirm the Trump administration's commitment to upholding the freedom Uh, Freedoms, rather, afforded all Americans under our Constitution. Well, officials stress that the impact may be limited, even though the rule changes are significant, as some large corporations were grandfathered into the policy and spared from the mandate anyway. Of the 165 million women in the United States, Health and Human Service estimates these rules affect about 120,000, leaving more than 99.9 percent of women without any impact, again, according to HHS. An official noted the administration anticipates the groups taking advantage of the change would be those involved in uh, legal battles pertaining to the mandate. There are about 200 of them uh, that they've participated in lawsuits because of the contraceptive rule, and those entities will benefit from this rule, the senior HHS official said. Another said that uh, there have been more than 50 lawsuits filed against the mandate, and the new rule would provide relief. Well, the types of contraceptives that are covered by this mandate that have been controversial since Obamacare first kicked in are FDA-approved methods, uh, which I won't uh, list here, but all of them that are approved by the FDA. And the mandate is not required to cover drugs that serve or induce abortions either. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, since the Obama-era rule, the share of women paying for their own birth control pills out of pocket plunged. Uh, to under 4% compared to 21% before the rule. Little Sisters of the Poor, the religious group that took uh, took their challenge to the Supreme Court, they touted the new policy, uh, saying that HHS has issued a balanced rule that uh, respects all sides. It keeps the contraceptive mandate in place for most employers and now provides a religious exemption. A senior counsel for the Beckett Law uh, Center and lead attorney for the Little Sisters of Poor said that the, the Little Sisters still need to get a final relief in court, which should be easy now that the government admits it broke the law. So that uh, was one of the major headlines today. Also, President Trump looks um, set next week to decertify Iran's compliance with its obligations under the nuclear deal negotiated by his successor after reiterating on Thursday that his view that the regime in Tehran has not lived up to the spirit of the agreement stands. Well, before meeting with senior security leaders at the White House, he said the regime supports terrorism, exports violence, bloodshed and chaos across the Middle East. Of course, all of that was true before the 
agreement was signed on to. He went on to say that's why we must put an end to Iran's continued aggression and nuclear ambitions. He added that the meeting would be discussing the Iran issue. Well, supporters of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of uh, Action argue that Iran is technically compliant with the deal, but Trump's reference again to the spirit alludes to a specific paragraph in the accord. That paragraph says that Iran and the P5 plus one negotiating group, the U.S., Britain, France, Russia, China and Germany, commit to implement this agreement in good faith and in a constructive atmosphere based on mutual respect and to refrain from any action inconsistent with the letter, spirit and intent of the uh, of the provision, the JCPOA, as it were, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that would undermine its successful implementation, end quote. Well, some have argued that because that wording is in the preamble of the deal, it's not part of the agreement itself, and therefore Iran cannot be held to it. However, the identical sentence appears again in the body of the accord. The Trump administration has also pointed to another sentence that does appear only in the preface. It says that the parties to the accord anticipate that full implementation of the agreement will positively contribute to regional and international peace and security. Iran has uh, contributed to neither. Trump Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and others have repeatedly drawn attention to the Iranian behavior, such as ballistic missile launches, support for terrorism, other destabilizing activity in the region, as the president did again on Thursday and as Congress did at the time then-President Obama signed on to the deal. Much recent uh, media reporting muddles the issue by stating inaccurately that the Trump administration has decided to decertify the deal next week, but not to abandon it. However, the president is not required to certify or decertify the actual agreement, which the Obama administration ensured was not a treaty requiring Senate advice and consent. Instead, the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act requires the president every 90 days to certify, A, that Iran is implementing the agreement, B, that Iran has not breached its commitments under the agreement, and C, that Iran has taken no steps to advance its nuclear weapons program. D, that the suspension of sanctions is appropriate and propitious uh, to the steps Iran has taken and is in U.S. national security interests. Next week will be the third time the president uh, must give that report to Congress and has hinted that he will not certify those uh, four points to be the case. Finally, petitioners uh, took another step toward allowing voters to decide the fate of a new health care tax meant to fill a funding gap in Oregon's Medicaid program after submitting signatures to the Secretary of State by Thursday's deadline. If 58,789 signatures are validated by the Elections Division out of the 84,367 submitted, that measure will be on the ballot for a special election Tuesday, January the 23rd. Representative Julie Parrish out of West Lynn, a chief petitioner for the referendum, said in a statement, I've personally talked to thousands of Oregonians this summer who are incredibly frustrated that the state has not worked harder to better use its health care resources. Well, referendum 301 refers to voters section of the health care tax law. And again, we're talking about the state of Oregon, House Bill 2391 that passed in the 2017 legislative session. It applies taxes to health insurance premiums and some hospitals. Well, the bill was a compromise between health care providers, insurance companies and lawmakers, and it's aimed at maintaining funding and participation levels for the Oregon Health Plan. Well, enrollment in that program was expanded under the Affordable Care Act, which required the federal government to pay for newly eligible enrollees. But states have to bear more of the burden past 2016 if they want to maintain enrollment levels. Now, that was true under 
the Affordable Care Act as it exists. Uh, and since it has not yet been changed, that stands. Oregon needed to pick up 5% of the tab this year, which will uh, grow to an expected 10% in 2020. At a rally in Portland uh, yesterday morning, the Coalition of Community Health Clinics launched the de facto first step of their campaign for the current law, assuming that petitioners would have enough valid signatures to get the referendum on the ballot. Patients and health care providers spoke out in support. The Medicaid expansion and Oregon Health Plan changed my life, said one presenter, an Oregon Health Plan recipient and member of the Oregon uh, Health Care, uh, rather Health Care for All Oregon. All Oregonians, especially those contending with disabilities, need access to care that they can afford. Well, if voters reject the referendum, the plan will lose hundreds of millions in state funding plus federal matching funds. And lawmakers would likely be forced to take up this issue once more during the 2018 shortened session. In fact, that was the intent when they decided during the session to schedule the vote for January. Lawmakers could make up the shortfall by cutting other programs, raising revenue in another manner, or removing up to 378,000 people from Medicaid. Additionally, the referendum has found its way to the court. Petitioners uh, appealed the wording of the ballot title to the Oregon Supreme Court, upset in part that the title doesn't include the word tax. Well, the current title calls the revenue gathering process an assessment because this is considered the language used in the law. Petitioners argue that wording obfuscates the law's purpose. The other brewing legal challenge result revolves rather around which portion of the law are being referred. In September, Legislative Council indicated that one of the central taxes being referred, a 0.7% tax increase on some hospitals, only applied to the section instituting the tax for the end of 2017. That means the referendum doesn't apply to this tax in 2018 and beyond. So clarifying what it's actually designed to do is part of what is actually going to be debated. So we'll continue to follow those stories as they develop. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, October's full harvest moon will share all night. Uh, rather shine all night tonight. Uh, it'll be passing by or fully covering Neptune in some parts of the world. In the pre-dawn hours, you'll get another celestial show with Mars and Venus close together in the um, eastern sky. I'm not sure how many of you plan on staying up or out long enough to enjoy it, but the moon reaches its full phase at about 2.40 uh, p.m. eastern daylight time, but casual observers will see a little difference uh, later that night, or later tonight, in North America, the harvest moon refers to the first full moon after the autumnal equinox, which took place on the 22nd. The name of the moon, however, may vary depending on which culture's literature you consult. Harvest moons are rare in October, and they're uh, set to occur only 18 times between 1970 and 2050. Usually, the full moon occurs much closer to the autumnal equinox. Again, this year it was on the 22nd of September, which could make the harvest moon fall in late September. Uh, Full moons occur when the moon is on the opposite side of the Earth to the sun. If the three bodies line up exactly, an eclipse can occur that turns the moon dark red or brown. Normally, however, the full moon is fully illuminated by sunlight, providing an excellent view of some of the features of its service. So the harvest moon, moon rather, is expected for uh, uh, this evening. 
Taking a quick look at what's coming up uh, on the program next week, Michelle Howe is going to be my guest on Monday. She's the author of Preparing, Adjusting, and Loving the Empty Nest. It's a companion to Empty Nest, her earlier book uh, titled Empty Nest, What's Next? And we're going to talk about, well, what's next? Adjusting to having all of the young people out of the house and and really uh, purposing to enjoy that. On Tuesday, we're going to talk with Pastor Clenard Childress and Jackie Hawkins. They're part of the Black Genocide Awareness Project. They're coming to the Portland area this month, and we'll talk with them about that ongoing project. On Wednesday, Chip Ingram will be my guest, Why I Believe, Straight Answers to Honest Questions about God, the Bible, and Christianity. It's designed to help uh, you answer those questions and to answer them uh, for others. We're also going to talk with Joan Lippis, who is uh, from this area but lives in Israel now. She is with Novea Ministry, and when she comes back into the Portland area, we love to have her on to bring us up to date. She's also going to be presenting a seminar in the Portland area. We'll give you all the details on that. Again, Joan Lippis will join us on Wednesday of um, next week. On Thursday, um, I'm looking forward to spending the day away from the office. Uh, my husband, Dan Rice, is anticipating uh, retirement, and we're going to go spend a day focusing with a, a PERS uh, organization on retirement. I tell you, I've never seen anything more complicated than uh, the, the process that you go through in order to retire if you are on PERS, and we're going to spend the day doing that. Uh, and then on Friday, I'm um, looking forward to a wedding of dear friend. Uh, her son is getting married, and I agreed to uh, do the catering for that event. So I'm going to spend the day preparing uh, for that. Also, I wanted to bring you the latest on uh, on Dan Rice. Yesterday, we met with the infectious diseases do- uh, doctor. As uh, many of you know, he has a pick line running from his arm into his heart where uh, for the second round of six weeks, he's had... Um, uh, nuclear antibiotics being pumped into his heart. The, he wears a backpack with it has a tubing that runs from the pick line um, into this bag where the antibiotics are are held. Uh, and then uh, once an evening, we add another antibiotic that he receives at the end of the day uh, as well. So we went to the infectious diseases doctor because the the plan is this uh, second round of six weeks of antibiotics that this is designed like a heat seeking missile. They tell us to kill the infection that's infecting and impacting his heart valve. He has an artificial heart valve, and it may also uh, be the result of a pacemaker that he also has. So finding out uh, how he's doing was the purpose of that uh, that event, and to talk about strategy, what happens next. And I have to admit, we're we're cautiously optimistic, although given our prior experience, we're not convinced that this is going to work um, this time. It hasn't worked previous attempts. Um, so we wanted to know what happens next, and they've told us that they're likely to lower their expectation and that when we finish this six weeks, a round of antibiotics, he's likely to then be changed to oral antibiotics that he'll take for the rest of his life. They told us it's not uncommon for people who have artificial parts of, in your back, your knees, and so on. If there, there's an infection that develops there, it's very difficult to get the antibiotics to the area where the infection takes place. So it's not uncommon for someone to take an oral antibiotic for the remainder of their life to try to keep it at bay. And that's what we're going to try, assuming that uh, this infection is not um, resolved. In fact, it may be the case even if it is resolved. On Monday, we're meeting with a heart transplant specialist to get him in the system because we've been told that having had three open heart surgeries, 
two heart valve replacements, one heart valve repair uh, surgery, all of which are, you know, the full-blown open-heart surgeries that require major incisions, that a fourth procedure would not uh, be advisable. And uh, in the event that uh, the infection is not contained sufficiently, that a heart transplant would be uh, the the next move. So we're meeting with a heart transplant coordinator on Monday morning, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. It's sort of overwhelming to me to hear about, but uh, I'm to Dan's credit, he's not uh, he's not fearful. He's not anxious about any of this. He's just trusting God and doing what um, they advise him to do from one day to the next. And uh, just like uh, the months before this happened, he's entrusted himself to God. So he's decided he's not going to be anxious about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough to be concerned about for itself. And, you know, the scriptures say that God feeds the birds, the lilies of the field. So he's going to take care of us. He's going to take care of him. And that's the position uh, that Dan has taken rightly as a man of faith. So uh, looking forward to that meeting on Monday with a bit of trepidation, but uh, hopefully have a bit more uh, clarification and we'll uh, continue to move forward. Um, In our meeting on, uh, I guess it was Thursday, um, we learned that the pick line will probably be removed uh, somewhere around the 23rd. And that will be a great relief. Carrying the drugs around with you in a backpack um, is a bit of a, an inconvenience, but um, that will be drawing to a close at some time in the not too distant future. So that's the latest on Dan Rice. want to thank those of you who have been praying and ask those of you who are just finding out if you would on occasion remember uh, Dan Rice in your prayers. This is a a journey we had not anticipated, but I have to tell you, it's always interesting when you're in a valley situation that God reveals facets of his character and provision that you don't see on the mountaintop. It brings you deeper uh, in your regard for him and understanding of of who God is and your trust. Uh, You're exposed as either someone who trusts in uh, word only or one who actually does trust God for the future. And so it's been uh, it's been quite an adventure and we're uh, we're grateful that we're not walking through it alone. So just wanted to give you uh, the latest on uh, on Dan Rice. Again on Monday we're going to be talking with Michelle Howe, preparing adjusting and loving the empty nest a companion to uh, Empty Nest, What's Next, her earlier work. And I want to remind you that the Portland Marathon is coming up this weekend. It's coming up on Sunday. It was not clear whether or not there was going to be one at all. And as I mentioned earlier in the program, I've uh, I've done two Portland Marathons. It's a, a great uh, event. The route is a little bit different this year. So if you think you know where it's going, you might want to consult uh, either the website or a newspaper because there have been some changes to the route that it will be taken. It's being uh, organized and conducted by a different organization this time as well. Uh, but for those who have been training for the Portland Marathon, this is the culmination of months and months of uh, training and preparation. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, that that one stretch at the 18-mile mark where you're making your way up to the Selwood Bridge, I dreaded that portion because rumor had it that that was going to be the toughest part of the whole thing. I dreaded that, and in my mind, it was... Uh, it was near impossible to make that one mile stretch from uh, the 18 mile mark up to the bridge. Happened to make it. It wasn't as bad as I had thought. And there'll be lots of people who have trained really hard, breaking records and just proving themselves to be strong and resilient and all their work having paid off. So keep your eyes and ears open for the Portland Marathon that's coming up uh, this Sunday. It's usually finished by noon, one o'clock, two o'clock. So it's uh, it's uh, early uh, morning event and early afternoon ending. All right. Well, I want to thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program and uh, James Blend, who's 
out sick today for producing in sort of a distant, nebulous kind of way. Uh, hoping he gets better uh, soon. And I want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. We started out this week grieving the loss of life in Las Vegas. Um, and we make our way into the next week hoping for better things, uh, praying for better things and opportunities to be a light to our our neighbors and friends and co-workers. Let's continue with that uh, heart for others uh, as we make our way into the weekend. Hey, have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.